Hey, Jason. Hey, JP. How are you? Good. How are you? Doing well. And welcome back to our incredible listeners. So you're tuning in to part two of our series, Philosophers and Firms. And we hate to begin on a dour note here. You know, we usually save the dourness for later. But before we launch into our normally scheduled programming, uh, we, JP and I, we'd feel remiss if we didn't address the recent murder of George Floyd by the Minneapolis police, which has really forced the public dialectical to once again grapple with the ongoing problem of racism in America and across the globe. And to be honest, you know, I wasn't quite sure how to address this problem uh, in a way that would be responsible and helpful. You know, our, our platform, JP, is relatively small, and personally, I don't spend too much time on social media still addressing any massive injustice in the world, and there are many uh, risks re-traumatizing the victims of those injustices who may be listeners of the podcast, and of course, we want you to feel welcome here. Mm-hmm. But watching the video of George Floyd's murder is horrifying. Yeah. Uh, no matter your politics or worldview, this should not be controversial. And countless videos depicting the police committing remarkable acts of violence against peaceful protesters nationwide, which has surfaced in the aftermath of George Floyd's murder, are also horrifying and must cause any reasonable person to pause and ask how the hell can this be happening in America today? And in a modern liberal society where core values such as equality, liberty, and the protection of basic civil rights are inscribed in our founding documentation, and we've had little over two centuries now to work out the kinks in our system, the violent police targeting of African Americans and the wider black community, the racism and socioeconomic inequities that persist and stem from our unique historical connections to slavery, and the irresponsibility, power tripping, and unnecessary uses of force that seemingly permeate American police forces in general. All of this is totally unacceptable, uh, always, but especially in the modern day. Yeah. So the current groundswell jp to defund the police resonates with the experience of those victimized by and witnesses to police racism and illegitimate uses of force in other words the police have been given many opportunities here to reform without creating the results that we expect and demand so you you and i might have a little bit of a different perspective here juan but my sense is that the majority of those who utter the call to defund the police understand the basic need for a reliable law enforcement mechanism to protect individuals from violence and other injustices. And I suppose there must be a contrarian view, but how does any society survive without enforcing basic institutions, sometimes through uses of force mediated by the state, where there will always be individuals who seek to undermine, manipulate, uh, or destroy those institutions? So this cannot be the vision of defund the police. Rather, the movement to defund the police seems to highlight the need to rethink policing at a more fundamental level. On the one hand, this means substantial organizational and legal changes from transforming leadership hierarchies, culture, recruitment and training, to instituting rigorous checks and balances and improve rules to inform legitimate uses of force. On the other hand, it also means revisiting the larger problem of structural racism that reflects enduring socioeconomic inequities across American society. So I've supported this movement to, quote, defund the police based on this deeper analysis that policing requires not some surface level reforms, but a total transformation. Mm-hmm. So JP, off to you. Yeah, I I agree with almost everything and most of what you're saying. And I, a couple of things. First, just like you said, I think it's responding to this, uh, especially when um, you are not uh, African American, is is uh, puts one in a situation where one really has to listen, right? 
Um, so responding to it, as you as you were saying at the beginning, is something that I think we do we do cautiously uh, in support uh, of those who are who are um, who have been victims of police violence and who are uh, protesting for kind of a change. Right. So that I and also I think you're very eloquent, Jason, about the way you describe um, what the situation is and why it's just unacceptable um, for anybody in our society. Uh, and the, how, you know, watching that video and seeing how, you know, how could that happen? And, and all the thinking about all the repercussions of that or all the things that could lead to that have forced us to ask questions about force us to ask some really, I think, deep questions about the system of policing that exists. Uh, this is, a, you know, we, me and you have been having the discussion for a bit, and we've had it uh, for a couple of days, for a couple of weeks, really, and now also before this, before we actually taped this this intro to uh, to our second part of our of our show, uh, of our series on on philosophers and 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 firms. And and as we've talked about it, we've talked about this whole, uh, notion of defund the police, right? Uh, as a communication, as a as a motive, as a kind of slogan, uh, in the best sense of the term, as a kind of strategic slogan uh, mm-hmm. for action, for getting action, but also in terms of what what are people who ask for that really asking for, right? And and we had some conversations, and I think we're not a hundred percent necessarily in agreement, but I think we're mostly in agreement. Um, and and rather than talk, maybe we can talk about the communicational if, uh, intent, right, or strategic intent uh, of the call to defund the police. But in terms of the substance, you know, I, my takeaway is that, uh, and now a lot of people respond to that with a sort of incredulity or a, a kind of like, well, you don't really mean that, right? Like, how can we have no police? What's going to happen if this happens, that, that happens? And as and me and you have had conversations off off uh, the record where we've I think we've tried to articulate what that might mean and what I take away from it uh, is this idea that there are other other models for dealing with social problems that are not policing and that we have predominantly dealt with so many issues social issues through the lens of policing and militarization and criminalization. And this this has been particularly a, a uh, just a destructive uh, framing for so many communities of poor communities, communities of color, not just communities of color, also poor, just poor communities across uh, race, but that in a country where race is a fault line that, you know, cuts across the, our history, as you mentioned uh, very eloquently, Jason, we cannot disentangle the way policing has been a kind of uh, blunt tool for 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 um, criminalizing, really, in a sense, uh, black bodies. And we could talk about all you know everything from loitering laws to to other things, right? Uh, that are about keeping people out of certain places or spaces where it might create a perception of safety and unsafety and so forth. Or even, and then we also talked about uh, how the whole discourse of crime 
tough on crime and looking at things through a tough on crime lens has so much been historically we could make the case i think some people have made the case and and we're not going to be able to right now uh in this short segment discuss fully whether these cases stand the test of analysis but some of the cases have been made that that these discourses of tough on crime have often been reactions of uh, uh reactions that have been taken advantage of by politicians in order to stoke kind of anxieties of white middle class people against um against other you know blacks minorities and so forth uh yeah you know let's talk about then this this idea of defund the police as a, as a sort of short discussion jason i as we discussed it i i think the takeaway is this notion that look we live in a, a society where so many things have been dealt through this criminalization frame when we really could be siphoning resources to kind of uh all kinds of other framings and actors to respond to specific situations. So, one that has been brought up, I think, by a lot of, in a lot of examples, is is uh, domestic violence, for instance, is something that could be dealt with by trained uh, uh, psychologists, by trained trauma specialists, by people who could come in. Um, create safe spaces, let's say, for those people who are facing abuse and give them the resources they need to get out of bad situations and so forth. But something that struck me right now, and then I'd like, you know, I'll, 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 I'll let you respond, Jason, sorry to keep, to go on in this not, not um, super organized <laughs> monologue, is what well, something that struck me is right now as you were talking was that... Uh, and it goes up to a discussion we were having about the basis of this idea of the social contract, right? This notion that the sovereignty of uh, power should reside in the people, right? In our kind of modern framing of, of liberal democracy, but that we, in a sense, we, in a sense, uh, give the state the, monop- the monopoly of force, legitimate force, but that we make... Ideally, we make the state jump through a bunch of hoops before it deploys that force at any given point. Um, what struck me is that that framing, nonetheless, is and, and I didn't bring this up before, but that framing is too narrow. Because yes, we want that. We want some modicum of some actor state capacity for force when needed um, to defend um, the autonomy of of individuals and communities, but. But how many times do the, the way the, the the kind of events that we think of through the lens lens of 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 crime and criminalization? How many how many of those take place before you can do anything about them? As really, yeah, social aberrations. You know, if someone kills somebody or murders somebody, if someone rapes somebody, if someone really in a radical way sort of transgresses against someone else's autonomy. So many times that happens in a way that there's really no policing of that before the fact all that how could happen is a sort of after the fact whether it's a, a sort of attempt to re- repair or an attempt to 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 make someone pay um for the transgression legally whether right so so i get this so my sense is uh, the fund the police is also a call to say this whole framing is 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 wrong for a way of thinking about the way we relate to each other we shouldn't look at each other as primarily dangers uh, of course, there are. There's always going to be, you know, there's always going to be instances where somebody transgresses radically, the kind of 
the kind of uh, boundaries of the individual, but that but that militarized police forces on the street are not necessarily creating more uh, are going to create more robust communities and more peaceful communities. We need to have new ways and new kind of mechanisms for allowing societies, especially poor and historically marginalized or structurally marginalized societies, to 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 create kind of the the the, the foundations for a more stable life. Right. Uh, otherwise, you're just reinforcing a kind of cycle of, you know, if you're fighting, if you're fighting uh, drugs, drug abuse and drug trafficking with purely with force, you kind of re rekindle this already violent dynamic into a more even more violent dynamic, as we've seen historically. Um, so that's that's what I take away from this call for defunding the police. And I, I see your point. I think there will always be some need for militarized special forces that can res- can respond with legitimate state-backed uses of force. But I think the need for those kinds of violent actions are much are going to be more rare than the kinds of um, instances of domestic abuse that you mentioned that could be addressed by social workers, um, well-paid social workers who are educated. Uh, who can respond on a timely manner uh, instead of sending, you know, um, Officer Derek Chauvin over to someone's house to do something that he doesn't know how to manage in an effective way. Yeah. You know, we need to look at different cases of what we might consider crime or something that would warrant a police response and figure out who is the right person to respond to this and what do they need to be equipped with, uh, which knowledge and which tools. Yeah. And... Most of the time, it's not going to be someone um, militarized. Yeah. That's going to be the rare instance. Yeah. So you're right to say we're not going to be able to prevent those instances of like horrifying serial killing. There might be a signaling component here where maybe you could argue that people deserve the thought that if they do find themselves in that kind of situation, that there is someone they can call. But you're right. Uh, there's not going to be much that can be done on the front end until you get a skilled investigator on the trail and then you can get more information and hopefully hopefully prevent additional killings uh, after that. It's the same case with domestic uh, extremism, terrorism, and those kinds of things. There's very little we can do on the front end, but more we can do on the back end after the crime has already been committed. Yeah. In the U.S., we have a remarkable problem with school, school shootings. Uh, that's something you need an armed response to. It's something that we can also probably reduce and control on the front end through psychological health health reforms and those kinds of things. Um, yeah. So in terms of crime reduction, there are other things we can be doing outside of creating a, a police force that is well-equipped to manage those things. But you still want some kind of police force that can address those things. And if you have a bunch of children who are holed up in a classroom... Uh, you need someone to be able to go in and respond with force to to um, save innocent lives. Yeah. Well, you know, and to that, I think we and we talked about this. I, I think the 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 use of examples that are really extreme cases, right? Um, the extreme case of the police shooting, the extreme case of the serial killer, the extreme case of the the kind of very violent hostage situation. There's such extreme cases that to look at, at our framing mechanism for responding to communities, right? It just doesn't make sense. So, so I think you're. I think I think you're right. Let's let's say to an extent, if you have let's say a hostage situation, 
where someone takes a bus hostage with people or whatever. You do want some kind of state capacity to respond to that, but you don't need to create a state capacity, a standing state capacity of of uh, of militarized police that are really responding to communities that are that are burdened communities historically that are struggling communities as a as a first response as a as a way right. of always respond as, not even as a first response as a way of framing those communities because those communities are filled with cops they have to deal with cops every day they have cops in their backs they have cops in their schools they have they have so instead of you know instead of militarizing criminalizing penalizing populations that are struggling that are that are in crisis mode how is it i think defund the police to say hey no more no more of this militarization of life daily life of treating these communities as um, as criminals first uh, you know we need we need other ways to to get these uh, communities in different paths and to, and to create peaceful communities so so my my sense is actually that um, that you want state capacity to do things like fight organized crime but you don't need standing military police in community in, in poor communities because that has nothing to do with even organized crime in those communities you don't need that right anybody who I think any reasonable person would realize if you want to fight, um, if you want to tackle organized crime, in, even in poor communities, what you really need are investigators and people who can pull cases together uh, and and eventually bring people in, into um, to account, right? Uh, just as you would if you were tackling the mob. So the extreme cases of the um, of the serial killer, the extreme case of the hostage situation, of the school shooting, which also, you know, I hate to say it for those who are out there who might not agree with this could be nipped on the bud by simply controlling drugs i'm sorry guns <laughs> right if people can't access um m16s they can't pull off the same kind of school shooting as right. they can now in the united states uh but there's you know defund the police is this call to really look deep into the way we have uh framed the governance of whole populations that have been treated basically as surplus populations and, and in a sense um, in a sense thrown into jail as a, as a primary way of dealing with them. So, you know, if we have two point something million people in jail uh, as, a, as, a, as a matter of state policy, right, because we've thrown people in jail for selling crack and weed and we've thrown people in jail for, for using three-strike laws and and minimum sentencing and uh, all these things it tells us that we've been we've been really militarizing daily life for so many communities and it has very little to do at the end of the day with the kind of kind of really extreme cases of some sort of like violence that you want to find you know you want to find uh, ways to deal with things like terrorism obviously but with things like um, state capacities for responding to organized crime and other things but you don't need a militarized standing police to do that, right? You need you need the right mechanisms of investigation um, and so forth. So yeah. So my sense is defund the police, saying, "Hey, look, police is not really about making you feel. It's not. It's not about creating safe communities. It's about policing um, downtrodden communities because we have no other. We haven't. We haven't started really responding to what the deep roots of the uh, the problems in those communities are, and rather we'd rather criminalize and throw into the than to jail. And and there's a, obviously a racial element that's very strong there. Yeah. So uh, I think the underlying, uh, you know, underneath defund the police, the call to rethink the police, restructure the police, 
with that goal in mind to create safer communities that really hasn't been the ultimate objective of our police forces. How do we start from the ground up and actually build an institution that can do that reliably and effectively? Yeah. And uh, maybe now we can just, you know, I don't know if you want to move on, but but discussing whether a, a, a kind of strategic call to defund the police is, is strategically, politically, like the way to go. I don't know. I, I think it's very provocative, right? And I think it calls for people, it, it gets people kind of like riled up on one hand. And on the other hand, yeah. it kind of, I think, rings true to some others, other people. And I think it's it's an interesting thing to, I think, reflect on what the strategic intent and actually effect of it is. Yeah, I, I, think, I think it has a certain valence. I think it's designed to not sit well with some people. Mm-hmm. And also to resonate with the experience of people who have been victimized by the police, who do not have any sense of confidence in our police forces to protect their communities, to protect their lives. Um, So it hits hits both of those needs on the strategic front. You need something that is going to resonate with the experience of the followers of your movement to create and sustain a movement that will be enduring um, and create a narrative that unifies people. Yeah. Um, but then on the, the other side, you want to keep public attention on this issue and you want people to look at your movement and ask, you know, defund the police. What does that mean? Uh, yeah. It causes, you know, it creates challenging discussions. It might create anger in some situations. It creates spectacle in some situations. And all this is good strategically for the movement because it yeah. keeps public attention on the issue, which is kind of what we need right now if we want people to continue having the conversation and we want to direct the dialectical in the right yeah. um in the right direction so ultimately we can influence policy and and start seeing actual positive change here yeah. because you know how many times have we had uh, you know seen mass public protest of police brutality and as i said earlier there have been so many opportunities for effective reform and we really haven't seen the results that we need right now yeah so i think strategy plays an important role in in creating a movement that will create um some change here at this moment you know maybe i'll i don't know if you have anything else to say at this point jason i I, we talked about i think how defund the police is also i think for me i take away it's a way it's a call to rethinking and reimagining our society in terms of its in terms of the 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 indexes of violence and the way of responding to and the way we respond to social problems in our society and why is it that the U.S. is such a violent society? Um, and I think we had, you know, like there's there's a lot of uh, examples we could come up with about less, much less violent societies, even even comparatively, I think, uh, size societies, right? Uh, <clears throat> so you know, we we talked a little bit off the phone about some some examples, but I think you could almost point to. <laughs> Almost every any any kind of country in the world, and sort of comparatively, see that there's a there's a way in which the United States is a very very violent society. Um, yeah, and and I think it's worth asking why you know how is it that this very framing of things in terms of criminalization has fed into this uh, violent uh, 
basis of American life, this very violent basis of American life, where comparatively we just have an inordinate uh, amount of murders, we have an inordinate amount of violence, and we have an inordinate amount of police. I was seeing a statistic the other day and about how in New York, I think the budget for the police in New York is um, makes it about the fifth or sixth in the list if it were a country of military spenders or something along those lines. Uh, some people are going to have to check that. Uh, my memory might be faulty. But anyway, the city of New York spends a lot of money on policing, right? Uh, to the point where it's almost like one of the biggest military spenders in the world. And that is that should be concerning to us, right? Why is it yeah. that we need that level of militarization in our in one of our in our city in our cities? What is it? What is the function of the police? What are they really doing? Are they how are they really keeping people? How are they creating a more safe society? And would other ways of organizing and using resources create actually more robust communities that wouldn't need that wouldn't be as violent and wouldn't and wouldn't uh, wouldn't have as much violence as in daily life, and and therefore, and also wouldn't be you know militarized in this, in in as a primary response for for people in crisis when it doesn't when it doesn't warrant it, whether it's people you know in drug in drug abuse or whether it's domestic violence or whether it's rape or whether it's other forms of of, of violence or abuse. And you know, if you build these massive uh, police workforces that are militarized, you know, they're individuals who, you know, every day wake up thinking they might have to go into battle. And maybe, you know, depending on where they're located, it's several years before they actually end up in a, in a violent situation. So they're just kind of sitting around waiting for this to happen. And you can imagine some of these individuals are probably just, you know, they see something and they think this is the moment and then they completely overreact. Um, mm -hmm. And it's because the training that they've received has very much emphasized what to do in these kinds of violent, high-octane situations that mm -hmm. in actuality are uh, rarities. So I think it gets back to, you know, who comprises the workforce and um, what are their roles and responsibilities? Because a lot of the you know, members of a police, of a new modern police force, do not have to fit into this traditional police officer yeah. uh, image. They can be social workers, they can be psychologists, they can be diplomats of sorts. There are other ways to mediate conflict that are going to be effective, that will uh, reduce violence, yeah. that don't involve uh, a militarized force. And then in those rare instances where you have you know, organized crime, where you have acts of terrorism, hostage situations, um, then you have you know, specialized operations that can respond appropriately to those kinds of events. Yeah. Um, so I think we need to, you know, start from the ground up and think about how do we structure these workforces and the leadership hierarchies and how do we put in the correct incentives so everyone, you know, has clearly defined roles and responsibilities and it's all backed by data based on the cities and counties in which they operate. Yeah. Um, so these are all things we need to look at. And uh, I know there, there are groups that are doing this kind of research. One of the groups, you know, actually Juan and I um, wanted to try to do something uh, meaningful here rather than just uh, getting up on a soapbox. So we donated what we can, um, some money to Black Vision Collective and Campaign Zero. 
And those are two organizations that were identified in the um, Stanford University Take Action Against Anti-Blackness Resource Guide. Mm-hmm. So if you Google it, you can find it or you can go onto our website and find it. And, you know, I think uh, we we really want to urge you, Panoptic listeners, to uh, you know give a donation if you can, if you're financially able. Or just, you know, let us know how you're taking a, a stand. You can get in touch with us via Instagram, Twitter, or email us at panopticpod at gmail.com. And, you know, of course, many of us are financially limited due to under and or unemployment compounded by coronavirus. But there are other immediately applicable ways for us to ally with the black community. So if you go into our website, you'll see a booklet that we posted that goes through some of our um, suggestions. Of course, we're not authorities on how to ally with the black community, but we at the same time want to try to provide some useful, helpful suggestions as best as we can. Yeah. Yeah. Please check out our website for this. You know, it's a, as Jason was saying, it has a statement for our, how our response as a podcast as a, as hosts to the situation and some resources for those who are interested in, in, in taking action really in a constructive way, hopefully. And yeah, I think with that, Jason, maybe um, we remind our listeners that this is just a short intro to our and response to the situation as we introduce our episode, uh, the second episode on philosophers and firms. And we hope you are enjoyed the first part and we hope you enjoy the second part. And we'll be talking about uh, information theory this time around with uh, Luciano Floridi. Mm -hmm. So a little bit of a change of pace, but... uh, (laughs) We hope uh, this uh, kind of uh, diversion was useful for you. Yeah. I don't know if information theory has much to contribute to the conversation, Juan, but... We'll have uh, to think about that. Yeah. Anyway, so I'm, I'm sure we'll return to this topic sometime in the future. Yeah, we'll um, have to. But otherwise, uh, returning to your regularly scheduled programming. Thanks so much for listening. The views that I express on this podcast are mine, and the same for our co-host, Juan Pablo. Well, they're his. Listening to Panoptic, relating theories of communication, power, and technology to practical institutional issues and everyday life. Welcome to the podcast. So, j- just to be clear, Juan, yeah, there there were citizens of the EU who were complaining that Google was not removing their personal information that was incriminating or something, and they they were arguing that they had a right to that data. Yeah. And that Google had an obligation to remove it. Yeah, right? if, I, if I'm not mistaken, it has to do with um, it has to do with a legal principle that's a European an EU legal legal principle that has that it has to do with the right to be forgotten. And under the, under this principle, this citizen brought the Spanish citizen brought this case, which went all the way up to the uh, European Court of Justice, and they basically said, Google, you do if someone says, hey, please take this down, as long as it doesn't present a sort of uh, a situation in that's in the public interest to have this information, you have to take it take it down promptly. 
But interestingly enough, the case basically, I'm sorry, the the court basically told Google, you have to determine when this is the case. You have to determine when when this constitutes censorship or when, and if it doesn't, you need to take that stuff down quickly. If somebody, if a citizen petitions, they received after this court case, they received hundreds of thousands of petitions to take information down. And so in response to this, they put together this task force in which they included Floridi to make recommendations for how they should, how they should respond to the ruler. Uh, Now I won't go into detail on the recommendations, but Floridi did write an article uh, in which he sort of made some comments on it. And he, he points out that the, what's, What's fundamentally at stake here is a collision between freedom of speech and freedom of privacy, right? Freedom of publishing information about others, freedom of access to information of others, and the public's freedom uh, or the public necessity to have information at, at, at hand, and the freedom of individuals' privacy. And he argues, you know, it's an interesting, you can already see how many problems come up with this in uh, in the comments that Floridi, Floridi makes. But he argues, he talks about two issues that he, he thought were important. One was the geographical territorial issue. He says he thinks the delinking information on the internet should take place at a national rather than a European level. And he argues this based on the notion that uh, since, since the Westphalia, the Treaty of Westphalia, we have our law, our legal system, uh, is organized and and operates on on national frameworks, and that it would be problematic if you told a bunch of different countries to take that information when you can use Google, let's say U.S. or a Google or a different Google search and find that information. Uh, he has some interesting arguments around that, and he also has a comment on how how much how publishers should be involved in such a process. He thinks publishers should be involved very involved in the process anytime uh something someone like google or a firm like google decides to de-link something from the internet they should be engaging with the the firm the group the person that published it and they should work together and we could comment you know superficially on these conclusions but it's interesting to comment that the these specific frameworks uh the framework of floridi's philosophy you know makes him an interesting figure to google his uh, philosophy of information, where he sort of says that everything can be boiled down to information and people at the end of the day are constituted by the information. Uh, they are comprised by, let's say, their medical data, their life history that's captured in different traces that you leave behind in the internet, our genetic code, uh, our, or social relations as they're captured on, on let's say, uh, digital media or, or social media. On Facebook, right. So there's there's a weird there's a really it's interesting that I think that they reached out to him, Jason, because his philosophy information clearly is one that's been posturing itself to answer these kind of questions. Uh, as we see from this question of delinking, though, information and this this tension between public interest and private private interest, uh, some of the questions that come up actually overlap with very old questions of philosophy and ethics, right? Um, they have to do with things like when, how do you balance this fundamental tension, right? And how do you do it given the f- legal frameworks that exist, national or international, something like 
the European Union as opposed to the nation state. Uh, he has, Floridi has written about, specifically about the moral responsibilities of online service providers. Uh, he, in an article that he co-authored with uh, Maria Rosaria Tadea, uh, titled The Debate on the Moral Responsibilities of Online Service Providers, uh, which was published in Science, Engineering, and Ethics, he does mention what he calls the problem of the lack of concreteness of moral frameworks followed by these companies. So he actually talks about these frameworks that we talked about earlier, Jason. He, may, he brings up this, you know, do the right thing, don't be evil, Google mantra. He talks about mm. a couple of others, and he says that there is little consensus about what principle, what he calls OSPs or, uh, or online service providers uh, follow. And the article offers basically an overview of, of the moral responsibilities that have been assigned by different people or observers or critics to OSPs uh, in basically since around 2000. And the article focuses on what it calls two levels of abstraction. And he defines this concept, levels of abstraction, which is really interesting and we might want to do, I think, an episode on it at some point, Jason, as as a, quote, finite but not empty set of observables accompanied by a statement of what feature of the system under consideration such an LOA stands for. So all that jargon is basically what model do you use to, to capture reality? And he says he looks at two ways to look at uh, the moral responsibility of OSBs. One is uh, the regulation of content. Um the more responsibilities of OSPs at the level of regulation of content. And one that has to do with things like information filtering, freedom of speech, censorship, and privacy. So these are two different levels at which he tries to gauge the way people have talked about the ethical responsibility of OSPs. And what he finds is that since around 2011, more emphasis has been placed on the public role and impact of OSPs in contemporary society, uh, given the understanding of them, of online service providers as information gatekeepers. Uh, he says there is a direct connection between the role and the public interest. He, he highlights, him and his co-author highlights some contradictions that come up. For instance, search engines are central in defining the scope of access to online information. However, the diversity of, of sources of information that guarantees a democratic web uh, can be contradicted by corporate market-oriented interests. So there is, there is a public interest in having a, a sort of set of information providers, a wide set of variety of information providers. But according to um, Floridi, critics have found that this is contradicted by the corporate market or oriented interests of private companies who run indexing and rank algorithms with commercial ends in mind, right? Uh, and there's also the problem then of Google's near monopoly status as a search engine, particularly in Europe, they point out. Other problems, things like market biases, how al algorithms drive people to already popular sites, uh, and also tailoring of searches to meet desire. Uh, users' interests, which sort of links to information siloing. This whole 
this is a discourse I think we're all familiar with, this idea that everybody lives in a kind of information um, silo. Other issues that they point out are, these are all things that we could talk about as ethical issues for firms like OSPs, is the role that OSPs play in shaping users' experience and hence their personalities, their subjectivity. And this should remind us, I think, of the worries uh, spoken by uh, Bernard Stiegler that we talked about in a, in an earlier article. So episode, should, episode three, I think it was. Right. So should OSPs be held liable for the information they make accessible? These are some of the questions that come up in the article. What is the moral responsibility of OSPs to promote human rights, like freedom of har- from harm, and how do they balance this with these with their interests? Right. So they he talks about an example of someone who actually was able to uh, uh, get information on a victim of someone who I think an ex uh, boyfriend or someone got a bunch of information on their ex girlfriend through the internet and then basically was able to attack and hurt this person, kill them, I think. So what, you know, what is the, what is the ethic, what is the true responsibility of OSPs to promote something like human rights or safety from harm, these sort of legal or, or ethical rights? And should companies comply or refuse to comply when countries like China, for instance, ask them to ban certain information? And Facebook, of course, responded to this by saying, well, you know, we need to, if we don't do it, Chinese citizens are still not going to get the information, so we should be there and try to provide some information, which was kind of the answer that, that Facebook gave to to when it responded to China's attempt to ban some information. And then so there's... The, the, this is... This seems like infinitely complex to me. Yeah, is you have corporate policy coming at odds against national law, international law, and I don't know as a company how you navigate those different realms of of regulation, and then also as you mentioned with China and things like trade policy and um, security interests that kind of all those types of things become confounding variables as well. Right. I, I don't know if we can expect companies to have the right answer, but even governments to be able to navigate the situation yeah. seems infinitely difficult. Well, and it shows how how we're coming to terms with this new field, right? Because the old the old ways of thinking about things like privacy and and the tension between that and public interests uh, are hard to balance in a in a context where it's globalized, where you can search for you can use Google US, you Google Europe, you Google Germany or whatever to search for information. So it fits the link to your like you can access it there. What um, we have things like declarations of human rights that are ex- that we've signed on that are many countries are signatories uh, through the UN, and yet and yet uh, their firms operating nationally are are they bounded to these? How are they supposed to ensure them? So you can see from the sort of whirlwind list of things that I just went over that Floridi makes mention of how there is a need for a framework that can uh, translate between all these different problems, all these different languages, all these different models, and find a way to create new, to, to, ask, to, to relate to these old questions in these new, with these new problems. Uh, something like the right between privacy and, and public interest, freedom of speech, and so forth. Uh, 
to me, this this highlights, Jason, the idea that philosoph- philosophical frameworks really matter, and um, and this maybe we can come back in a little bit and ask how that is problematic from the context of to what extent can a firm, let's say, apply a self-reflective or critical philosophical framework. But as let me go back to this definition of philosophy that. Uh, I touched upon earlier that Habermas gives us, and this is from one of his books, Between Facts and Norms. He says, quote, philosophical concepts no longer constitute an independent language, or at any rate, not an encompassing system that assimilates everything into itself. Rather, they provide a means for the reconstructive appropriation of scientific knowledge. Thanks to its multilingual character, if philosophy simply keeps the basic concepts clear, it can uncover a surprising degree of coherence at a meta level, and so and so this this brings up a lot of questions about uh, which are going to have to be left for other uh, discussions, Jason. But it has to do with does language of, does the philosophy of information paradigm that Flor, Floridi brings forward, which is very much, uh, which is very much has a computational or compu- or computer science perspective is that the right one for for the firm context for for translating between the firm's interests and let's say things like public versus private interests uh that's one question another one is how does google direct its actions in the world in relation to these old problems or can google really care about these what is the what are the limits of how google can incorporate let's say a framework that allows it to act uh, ethically by balancing these things between the public and private interests, and this goes back to this question, right, Jason? That that the the European Court of Justice basically said, Google, you have to decide what what constitutes uh, censorship and where you really should just take that information down. This, mm. you know, this this creates a problem of governance. Who decides what is in the public interest? Can they actually decide what's in the public interest when their interest is to make money? Can they really do that? Uh, I'm not sure. That's a that's a big question. Then there are other. I mean, there's a bunch of other problems that come up. I think uh, from from Floridi's perspective, mm-hmm. if we if Google adopted his framework totally, uh, then they would have to look at the bits of information in question and determine is this substantially constitutive of the being of this individual. Yeah. Something like that, right? Right. This is how this is how Floridi kind of. This is one of the guidelines he gives in some of his in some of his discussions of how, let's say, something like Google could decide, or how in a new framework in which we're sort of deciding where people are using all these all these products and they're on the internet all the time, they're leaving all these traces behind of of what they do and the actions they make and the things that they look at. And uh, the question is, what of what of that information that you're leaving behind that in a way constitutes who you are in the eyes of others? What is what is really constitutive of your of your identity or your personality or, or your being, and what is just worthless? And and perhaps that might be a guide for determining what information needs to be in the public interest and what needs what is should be kept private. I don't know if this is, this is the correct answer for that, but that's one guideline he gives. So if I eat a hamburger yesterday, 
and it's recorded on Facebook. <laughs> can I, can I go to Google or can I go to Facebook? Can I go to Zuckerberg and say, Hey, I need you to remove that from, I mean, I, I may be able to go on a Facebook and delete that myself anyway, but let's say I couldn't. Is, is that an insignificant data point about me personally that I can demand one of these um, tech leaders remove it from the web? Yeah. Um, or, you know, it, a lot of people, if you get a, like a, a speeding ticket, for example, on one of those surveillance cameras, that those are recorded on the web. So you can Google yourself and, yeah. and often find that information. And there are firms that specialize in burying that kind of information, but they're going to charge you a lot of money to do it. And they, yeah. they do it through like SEO optimization and those kinds of things. Right. But those kinds of, I, I don't know. I don't know if you can go to Google and be like, hey, you have to remove this because it's hurting my career, my upward career mobility or right. something like that. And well, right. when, a when personal Google... part of my life that is more significant than me having a hamburger yesterday. No. Well, what if, you know, we pre we when we apply for jobs, we present CVs, right? But what if these become superfluous when a potential employer can buy a profile from Google that using the data they're able to accumulate from us, things we can't even begin to think about, right? Not only how long do you spend at a web page, what kind of web pages do you go, what time of the day do you go to them? Um, in a way, creating a psychological profile based on that information. Um, what part of your, you know, where are you looking at this information? Where do you move in the city? Uh, there's so much there's so much information with every click on a, on, on a mouse or on a keypad that we're giving that can be tabulated to create profiles and, and meta commentaries on your personality that then could be sold and, and someone could say, well, this shows a propensity for this and that. And psychologically, we say this about this person or that. Who, who, this brings up all kinds of problems, right? How much of that information is actually superfluous and how much of it because it's superfluous, is should be accessible or less accessible, right? Something that might seem totally innocuous but can be used to build a psychological profile of you can actually become very problematic for you. Jason goes on Facebook first thing in the morning every time he wakes up, and he always likes pictures of, of puppies in them, and and right? And someone starts taking this information and building some kind of complex profile of your psychology and saying, well, this, we see that Jason will have a 40% chance of not being able to succeed in a very competitive environment given his propensity to like fluffy things, right? <laughs> like you could just imagine, this is a ridiculous example, but you can imagine uh, how, how this information isn't, isn't just superfluous. You could put it together to create a map that tells you something supposedly about somebody or that people can use to make assumptions or to make conclusions about who you are. So they'll, they'll know I'm not enough of a sociopath to be a successful CEO. <laughs> Is that what you're exactly. Right. So this, this puts ethics and philosophy, I think, in a, in, a, in a field that we're still coming to terms with. Imagine like we're entering an era where we might lose the freedom to present ourselves through a personalized resume and already let's that's kind of like all these companies have algorithms that will sift through mm. the keywords that you enter into there and it's not a standardized system so when you're applying to jobs like many of you probably know this you have to go into your resume and 
populate the keywords into whatever format they have. But in the future, you could have algorithms to just pull that data. They find out where you've where you've worked, what your criminal history is, what your education history is, um, what what kind of relationships you have, what you like, and they generate a profile automatically. They don't even need a resume for you. You have zero freedom to represent yourself and make a case that I am the right person for this job. Right. And that's scary also. Imagine what that's going to do to the competitive landscape. No. Yeah. And are you are you being created on what scale, um, right? Based on what uh, values and interests? This this is this is really a lot of questions. This might be a critique of Florida, right? Can you actually boil someone's being down to data points? Yeah. Or what level of abstraction is deep enough? Yeah. To properly represent someone's worth in a in a professional context. Right. It leaves a lot of questions open, and I think we would have to dive into his work to see if he manages to respond to that. But we, what you just said seems to me crucial, right? What level at what level of abstraction? Do you take a bunch of information data points and you say this is what fundamentally matters about this person who creates that model based on what values is it really stand up to let's say an ethics or a moral framework that we would find rigorous enough who whose moral framework uh those are all really problematic questions right jason what is the level of abstraction where you say oh well the information about the kind of websites that Jason, the kind of Instagram pictures Jason likes, and the kind of the kind of food that he eats and gets some takeout, and uh, right, like what of this is actually matters about the person and tells us something ethically or or in terms of skills and capacity for about a person, and what shouldn't be accessible, right? Yeah, and who should be? So there's there are a lot of questions that aren't unanswered unanswered here especially if we're looking at it people as information yeah but it also shows how important philosophers could be you know someone like Floridi presenting a framework of information as the primary way to look at the world is already creating a model for for answering ethical questions so i think i think that that kind of answers our question beyond the business case or beyond the 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 marketing the thought leadership yeah Floridy has actually presented a framework that might help Google operate globally once they kind of work out the finer details, whether or not we, we might disagree with, with the framework that is offered by Floridy. Yeah. But at least it's presenting a, a roadmap for how companies that are dealing with these complex questions of technology, how they might need to change their business practices in the future yeah. and make it consistent so they can avoid all of the costs and inefficiencies associated with navigating these legal complexities across yeah, the world right so i think not every philosopher is going to be able to or humanities phd is going to be able to go into the private sector and pioneer an entire area entire model <laughs> right to help to you know to, to guide how the company chooses to operate across in in, in the world but uh it is something that at least florida has been able to accomplish and gets back to our point about being a little bit creative and innovative with your philosophy backgrounds humanities backgrounds and coming up with hey you know i see in this industry there's this dearth of information that is causing problems how can i come in and do something that is productive from a public standpoint that also ties to the to the business needs of of 
of firms in, in, in that market. So one question I had for you, Juan, is Florida definitely seems like more of a serious philosopher. Uh, Horowitz definitely has that background in philosophy, but he's doing more entrepreneurship and, yeah. and um, software development types, types of stuff. Where does philosophy end and business begin? You know, I, I don't know if we have an answer for that for today, Jason. I think we could discuss this, for instance, as a problem of something we've talked about before. And this has to do with one of the core concepts of our, of our podcast, this idea of technology, communications, media, and the way that media perhaps... And we're, we're using media in a broad sense as a, as a concept, theoretical concept, the way media like money, like language, uh, structure our spheres of action and, or, and structure the way agents interact with the world. And this comes up very clearly in, in Floridi's notion of levels of abstraction as uh, kind of the models through which we make sense of reality. And he, he very much ties this to old philosophical questions of what kind of questions can we pose and what kind of answers can we get? And and uh, information, right? Money is this media for providing information. It structures the relationship of agents seeking to satisfy kind of egotistic or uh, strategic goals in, in the market. Law is regimenting as a media that regiments, as a language-based media, but a formalized one that regiments interaction of agents in a way that neutralizes power, right? Power relations, that's what's being uh, neutralized in the, in the law. It says, the law says that you can't show up in my house, Jason, and just kind of walk in uninvited, especially if I don't want you to, uh, because this is a private space, uh, right? And and uh, there are other ways in which the law sort of regulates our power relations, and, and so it's supposed to level out power relations and make them legitimate, and allow for more maximum autonomy. Uh, at least that's the liberal democratic conception of law. Uh, or Google, right, as a media framework or media structure that, that regulates communications between agents, right? Communications, we could think of mass media, the old form of communications where you had something like the radio or the television and everybody was tuning into the same show at 8 o'clock to listen to the news. Now we have something like Google, as this, as this, as this kind of institution that regulates access to information in terms of communicative information, uh, facts, what happens in the world, narratives about what's going on, news. So one way to posit this is how do these interlink? Uh, you have the legal, political, you have the communicational public sphere, you have the private, money-oriented, and then you have... Uh, and and then you have something like Google come into the world and, and with its financial interests, with its having to balance public and private interests in new ways. Uh, philosophy, where, do, where does philosophy begin? Where does business end? You know, I think this question is about sorting out these spheres in a way that's coherent. Uh, and actors that, actors that, or firms that are acting in a private setting that are oriented towards perhaps primarily egotistic goals, goals of maximizing profit um, in the firm setting as it exists today, we have to ask the question of what the limits are between 
what it can do ethically and what it can't, right? Maybe it can't, maybe as you mentioned, ethics can be a framework for orienting the way it treats people within its organization, the way it structures relations between people, the way it makes uh, ownership or leadership accountable to its base. But there's always the question then of how accountable can it be, right? You can be accountable to your employees to an extent, but this is this goes back to questions of things like do they have a union? Do they have any kind of seat at the table in terms of actually making decisions? Can they be fired? Is there something stopping it from happening in terms of an actual institution institutional mechanism that stops leadership from just acting dictator in a dictatorial fashion? Given the fact that in our in our system under private law, whoever owns a company is basically can do pretty much whatever they want within the law, and the law doesn't say that you have to be nice or ethical to your employees. It just means you have to pay them and you have to give them certain provisions and so forth. So you see how there's a there's an interlinking of these spheres of action which are not clarified and under con- current context create a lot of limits for where philosophy can actually, uh, other than a pure, I'd say a pure uh, intention of, a, of, let's say, a company of doing the right thing, <laughs> right? Uh a company can want to do the right thing, but it's always going to be based with its with its sort of limits. The fact that it needs to survive within a within a competitive market setting, and I wonder how much that places a limit to how far it can act ethically. I don't know. It's also not a, It's also an agent. It's also we we could argue about whether it's an agent. A, a firm is is uh, is an institution. It's not necessarily a, an agent an individual agent that makes decisions based on ethical frameworks. It acts based on its logics. Yeah. And it's not like we have standardized KPIs for tracking how an organization, how ethical an organization is treating its employees and yeah. stakeholders. Right. Um, really, the, the the best way for us to do it and the way that it's done today is through surveys conducted by external groups yeah. and say to the, to, to the employees or the ex-employees, right. how was your experience? did it was it ethical was it unethical were you treated with respect was it an honor culture or a deontological <laughs> culture right probably not asking that question but the the issue of probably ex-employees some ex-employees might not have very might have a everyone's going to have a, a biased perspective on this so it's, it's very hard to, to capture and standardize this data no in the same way that we might capture the financial performance of an organization. So it's not like you can easily audit an organization and and determine how ethical they are uh, as a comparison to the rest of an industry. Yeah. It's very difficult to do. Right. Yeah, and as you said, that, that links to this fundamental problem, I think, or question of can we really expect institutions to be ethical agents when, they're, when their logics are oriented in a within our current sort of legal, uh, political, economical system, they're oriented towards certain goals and ends. Uh, and we could get into a big discussion of the kind of difficulties of of uh, interlinking ethical values with, let's say, utilitarian values, uh, goal-oriented. And this goes back to a question of ends versus means, right? Means versus ends, or the inversion of means and ends. And... and uh, it's a very, it's a it's a feel that I think we still are working through if we are trying to imagine different ways of actually applying ethics in a or philosophy 
in a firm setting beyond maybe what you mentioned, Jason, which is a philosopher or a humanities person might be really equipped to think across models, to think across languages, to translate from one set of concepts to another, to apply very concrete levels of abstraction that that create inputs that, where you have inputs that create coherent outputs based on a, in a specific goal. And that, in that sense, perhaps philosophers can be very valuable uh, or humanities-trained people can be very valuable for companies, but perhaps not so, but perhaps they're in the ethical dimension, not so much uh, because they might tend to hamper <laughs> the ultimate goal of making money. So there's a, there's a question, I think. There, there's a op- set of open questions that we've touched upon, Jason, that are still remain to be worked through. That's uh, such a good point. Um, I, I think, I think you're right. I think there might be a difference in terms of bringing that ability to think in systems flows and, and bring in frameworks to replace old, maybe antiquated frameworks to make an organization more in line with modern yeah. times uh-huh. to, to update the culture, to transform the technologies and those kinds of things to make it more efficient that, or mm-hmm. that's there's, there's a clear business case in terms of making it more ethical. Um, more challenging unless unless you can tie some of those things back to you know as with all things like the cultural discourses social discourses are always updating and and checking themselves and um, if we believe in Habermas's model the the communicative action model where you have the discourses and forming the legislative branch Mm -hmm. moving into the executive branch which are then judged by the judicial branch and then back into the public sphere for conversation yeah uh then firms would would have to stay in tune with that discourse to constantly evolve change and and transform themselves right Uh, so if we are as change managers updating the culture it, it may very well be supporting the business but it also might be an ethical thing to do yeah. based on the the current discourse that's an inter- interesting way to put it yeah and that's where i i think there's a huge opportunity for people like you Juan, w- with <laughs> who bring that humanities expertise to come into the change management sphere and make us do a better job um, i really think we should welcome phds from the humanities and psychological fields to build more robust evidence-based change management practices and some of this comes from this book I've been working through, The Science of Organizational Change by Paul Gibbons, who's a change manager who's worked with a lot of the, the large management consultancies and brings a lot of practical hands-on experience, uh, but he's also very critical of the industry, arguing for, for a new way of doing things. Yeah. And I thought this tied into our conversation about philosophers and firms really nicely. So I, w- I want to go through a few of Gibbons' observations the first one being the need for better statistical rigor in the change management field. So there is a statistic that we throw around all the time that 70% of change initiatives fail. And that is based on a guess from a 1993 book called Reengineering the Corporation by Michael Hammer and James Champy, and thereafter echoed by Harvard professors Cotter and Harari. According to Gibbons, Harvard Business School still cites this statistic as part of their standard business curriculum. So there's new data to suggest that the rate is closer to 50% in terms of whether or not the company incurred value in the form of revenue due to a change. 
Gibbons rightly notes that the base rate becomes somewhat useless. As a change manager, you have to evaluate the change readiness of each organization independently from others, and the average rate can distract from all the vital details. Um, based on research conducted by Dr. Martin Smith, who summarized 49 separate studies of change success from academic and trade press, culture change seems to fail most often, around 81%. And this is useful information if you're trying to change the culture of an organization, right? Hmm. Now, what do we mean by failure? Could be complete write-offs, slight delays, exceeding the budget. What about impacts to employees, the community stakeholders? Failure can take on a different meaning depending on who the observer is with respect to the change initiative. So these are just some of the points about the lack of statistical rigor. Um, they're... Essentially, it maps on to what Floridi is saying in, in kind of a, uh, an interesting way, that the level of abstraction is too high, that mm -hmm. we come in with these kind of sweeping models, these old statistics, and use that as the basis for how we do the work oftentimes. Yeah. And no. it would, we, we would be more effective if we had better, um, more, uh, more uh, meticulous levels of abstraction, better models, better statistics for guiding the work. Some of the things that Gibbons recommends is using a SOX framework, shortfalls, overruns, consequences, killed, sustainable for judging failure, and then conduct studies to come up with better statistics for when change initiatives fail. Because right now, all the studies, or many of the studies are using different terminology and different ideas of what a failure is. So it's very, very hard to come up with standard recommendations for how organizations should move forward with change initiatives. And also one observation I had, it still might not capture other concerns beyond the logic of the firm, right? So a failure could be like yeah. a, a BP oil spill is certainly a failure from a business standpoint because of all the money they lost on the effort. But what about the external stakeholders and the externalities to the world and to the ecology? Right. Those are things that more and more as companies begin operating from more of a stakeholder, take more of a stakeholder perspective on how they structure their business models. I think that's going to become more and more and more an important part of the, the conversation. And if we come up with better ways of auditing companies and judging how successful they are based on those kinds of performance metrics, it'll be more important for people to think about change the the failure of change from from more of a, a wider public standpoint yeah gibbons goes on to say though that every project needs to have a SOX review once completed or not using early budgeted costs and benefits as a baseline so internal analytics and how the organization has fared in terms of change initiatives um, so you can develop change success statements like when we have attempted to implement new technologies we exceeded the budget by an average of whatever percent or when we tried to mine the specific resource, we obliterated the local community, and that's not good either. Those are the kinds <laughs> of things that companies aren't tracking that they should be tracking, right? And that would be a way of standardizing some of this information so we can yeah. have better, better strategies when it comes to managing change. So another observation Gibbons makes is the need for better knowledge. And the, the top 10 business publications actually lack a formal peer review process. And Gibbons really seems to despise the Harvard Business Review. So he tells his students not to cite HBR <laughs> studies because, because of this lack of peer review. I didn't know that, actually. Huh. Um, I, I cited HBR in, in business school all the time. So hmm. part of the issue is that there isn't any 
change management core curriculum. In fact, most programs don't require change management training. This, this, this course, this kind of training exists in one in 100 elect electives. So this may stem from biases against the change management trade. You know, one perception of change management is it's the soft emotional stuff. Gibbons notes that it's often labeled feminine in kind of a sexist way. Everybody feels that they are pretty good with people and can address people problems on an ad hoc basis. And really, it's not true. Uh, it's just not true that you can approach any situation, be kind of nonchalant about how you are going to reduce the resistance of your stakeholders when you're trying to implement something. You can't just assume that because you're a good people person that they're going to work with you and be collaborative and want to be a part of the change process. So it's much better to come in with evidence and data and training so you can navigate those situations more successfully. Uh, also, the recommendations you get from some of the change management areas are couched in psychological and sociological language. And often it doesn't play well with technical staff and program leaders. Hmm. Uh, they kind of, they see things from more of a technical lens. Yeah. So this reminds me of, if you've ever seen Mad Men early, there's an early scene where they have a psych, a psychologist come in and she starts talking about the deaf drive. And, uh, and one of the executives is like, what, what is that? And she starts talking about, you know, edible drives and stuff and they just you know they kind of walk out out of the room because they're like what are you, the hell are you talking about so you know it, it brings up this question of when you bring in these theoretical discourses and how many how people who want to look at things technically are might be might think that these are beside the point it's like well what what really matters is that we ensure the development of our software automation is on schedule and then we're going to need this license we're going to need buy-in from these leaders, da-da-da-da-da. And it's good to have that detailed program management plan. But if you're not thinking explicitly about the people, um, you know, I mentioned buy-in, like you need to have a strategy for how are you going to get that buy-in? How are you going to ensure that the community in which you're trying to implement this change, if it's a, a like a robotic process automation, that they're going to be on board. Probably process automations are, are kind of spooky. So a lot of times... You spend all this money building the bot, and then it's never used because people think their jobs are going to go away. There won't be value added to their job roles. So they reject it, and it just kind of remains stagnant and gets, gets shelved, and you lose a lot of money. Yeah. And you know, to, to your point, Juan, when budgets get slashed, change management is almost always the first program to get cut. So it's true that the most difficult part of any change initiative is the people. So having this kind of behavior this perception of change management is really self-defeating if people don't buy into the change if people don't use it then you don't get the return on your investment well let's let's come back to this in a minute but i think uh i think dealing with people brings us brings up the question of levels of abstraction but also brings up the question of what uh what is your ultimate goal and what you're doing uh in terms of how the firm incorporates maybe social science discourses, psychological psychology discourses, and things given its overall aim of of maximizing efficiency, productivity, uh, profit, expansion, uh, and so forth. Right, all these kind of firm logics, I would call them, or firm ultimate values that are end values that that tend to override uh, things like when you're talking about changing something culturally. Are you just talking about 
changing someone's the way they do something in terms of a method how they check something a box before they go somewhere else or does it mean something beyond that uh sort of maybe making more uh making people who are who are more efficient uh at the end of the day we have to there seems to be maybe a disjunction here i don't know how much it can be connected i don't know how many how, how it can be resolved yeah and yet there is i think as you said from the perspective of firms there is sort of the need to take the the most updated and also rigorously f- founded and uh, not based on erroneous models psychological and social science uh knowledge and methods if you are going to do something like even as simple as trying to get someone to change the way they fill out a form the way they send an email right yeah well, that, I mean, that can be important. If you have a culture, if you're trying to merge two organizations and one organization is very informal in the way they communicate and the other is more um, rank-oriented and respect for authority and those kinds of things, that could be a huge clash. And even, I think, you and I kind of went through something similar with with our previous company. Mm-hmm. It's a complete mishmash of communication styles. One group is loud, swears a lot. Another is reclusive <laughs> and sticks to their cue. You mean and those kind? Of, you mean yelling down the hallway yeah. at everybody is not a effective communicational style. <laughs> and maybe it's not even a question of if either communication style is better. It's there are probably pluses and and negatives depending on the situation. But if you try to bring two cultures together, those two groups of people probably aren't going to mesh well. And that's going to hurt your bottom line over time. Yeah. So you need to have you need to take that into consideration before you decide to purchase a firm with a completely different culture. Yeah. Or if you if you have a strong case for doing that, then you need to invest a lot of money in change management so you can navigate that. Yeah. But yeah, you you're right, Juan. Uh, another one of Gibbons' points is that there is a need to apply the most updated knowledge from psychological and social sciences while pulling from other concepts across the human the, the human sciences and develop evidence-based solutions to specific challenges. So sometimes uh, change managers were kind of like armchair psychologists. And to be clear, it's not our jobs to psychologically counsel anyone, but we have to have an awareness of psychological frameworks for human risk assessment, for effective coaching, for communicating, mobilizing, and leading people, things like emotional intelligence, EQ, personas, impact assessment, engagement surveys, psychometric data, empathy, mirroring, those are all things we have to be able to speak to and apply in our day-to-day job. And it's useful to be able to reach back into our theoretical toolkits to identify better solutions to specific challenges to produce better results and also to differentiate value from other surface level offerings. Right. There is we're getting back to that like marketing and thought leadership area, mm-hmm. but one thing is, you know, when you have the opportunity in a proposal to write to your change management practice, you know, how you're going dif- how your change managers are differentiated from that of the competitors, those of the competitors, having that that ability to reach back into your theoretical toolkits and talk specifically to the types of frameworks you apply in different situations is a massive differentiator. If you if you have that level of detail, in the kinds of proposals that you're submitting, you're demonstrating that you have a much deeper knowledge and a much more high quality product and service than many of your competitors who are just offering 
recommendations at the surface level and when push comes to shove they're probably not going to be able to speak to why they decided to go one way instead of the other why they used a personas approach in this case rather than a like a pro-sci approach pro-sci being kind of a more um it's like the industry standard change management approach having people with with that kind of uh, background from the humanities or from philosophy to be able to speak to those models and frameworks and define the appropriate level of abstraction could be a huge competitive differentiator. Yeah. And last thing I wanted to mention from Gibbon's book, um, change management, and this isn't necessarily good for my job, but change <laughs> management is too important to be left to specialists. Uh, and this is, I think, one of the best arguments for companies hiring individuals with interdisciplinary backgrounds that include management experience and humanity studies, much like you want. So you might be perfect. Uh, the change manager's job is to identify gaps, strategize, align teams, persuade hearts and minds, and mobilize behavior. Um, but this is really the job of a good leader. Managers are not actually required to have this rigorous data-driven background in leadership, so it's no surprise that change initiatives fail so often. If this became a, a part of educational curriculum, if leadership studies, change management studies became more the norm, they're em- if they're emphasized more, uh, I think that would be hugely beneficial to the internal change capabilities of organizations. So having a few change advisors may help, individuals like myself but if you don't have an internal change management capability then you might not be prepared for successful change or you better be ready to spend a lot of money on individuals like me to come in and help with that okay so i wanted to end on can we tie this back to floridy a little bit more Um, can we philosophically ground change management and that's the question can we come up with a standard framework for how do we decide which level of abstraction or which models are appropriate to apply given different change scenarios. Yeah. If it's culture, if it's technology, if it's um, a software development situation, are, are there ways to bring, um, or even is it a, a human capital thing? Is it a merger merger and acquisition situation like we were talking about before? Um, or is it a product discussion as well? How do we create a, a product that, um, is going to meet the needs of our consumers or that maybe is going to fit a certain regulatory need now. Yeah. So those are all kind of interesting questions that require different frameworks from in terms of uh, change management from the humanities uh, perspective. Yeah. So I, I wonder if there's a role for, for philosophy and humanities professionals, academics to, to support in those areas. You know, and I think following from everything we've discussed, Jason, I I would say there's a two-part response to such a question. The first part is that, yes, you can philosophically ground, I think, a method um, that it's rigorous and allows people in something like a firm to to be more uh, effective in the way that they are doing things like... uh, in whatever initiative that it might be carrying out. So, and Floridi, for those who are might be interesting, interested, provides a framework for doing this uh, in his book, Philosophy of Information. He basically argues for uh, a, pros- a method 
philosophical method, which could also be a, a larger, we could understand it in a larger sense as a scientific method that is about being clear and rigorous in the levels of abstraction that you use, what he calls LOAs. He says that we can create robust models by keeping basic concepts clear. If we ask the right questions, we're going to get get a set of answers that we can expect uh, that will uh, a perspective on, a, on reality. So the terms, what's important for him is the terms of description and relation that one uses when modeling reality, because these will define the causalities that one is able to detect. They don't provide a complete vision of causality, let's say of reality, and one state of a system to another, but something like one dimension of that reality, one perspective or level of granularity. Uh, if you are interested in, in further reviewing that, there, uh, I think it's his second or third chapter in that book, goes into depth into the relationship between levels of abstraction and levels of granularity. And believe it or not, uh, this brings up sort of some prime philosophical problems um, which have to do with things like creating models to understand, take snapshots of reality. Uh, it's important to know what variables you're using uh, in order to, depending on what kind of perspective you're trying to get on that reality. Uh, so that's, uh, depending on what level of abstraction you take, you will get a different level of granularity. Uh, this goes to some fundamental philosophical questions, which we, me and you talked about recently, Jason, uh, uh, Kant's famous antimonies, right? Where he says things like, uh, the world is, is concrete, uh, thesis, and the antithesis is no, the world is sort of infinite and, and continuous, right? He says these are, uh, these are sort of bad philosophical questions. We can't ask these questions because they ask us to, to have like an answer that we can't really give, given our sort of finite perspective. We, we can never know if the world is really just concrete and made up of concrete elements that can't be subdivided anymore. And we also can't know if the world is, if the reality or the universe is sort of like continuous and, and ever finite and we could divide it infinitely. These are bad questions. We get bad answers. What we can know is pose concrete questions that using a model that give us a kind of perspective on reality. And so if you think about this, this is very much relates to the scientific method. Uh, so in that sense, you could say that philosophers as people who are trained to think about questions of model building, causality, how to create, uh, what kind of questions you get, what kind of answers you're going to get depending on the questions you're going to pose, uh, and how different models let's say a, a model that's uh, or an observer perspective that tracks uh, human interactions as if they were empirical um, sort of interactions as opposed to a human-centered perspective that looks at the way they lose language and the assumptions that people make uh, in terms of the decisions that they make as agents or moral agents. These are the kind of questions that philosophy is equipped to, to ask and that might be quite useful for people who are looking at thinking about uh, restructuring firms or how to act more efficiently one way or another. But the second part of this answer, I think, Jason, is is all these models at the end of the day would have to graft out or maybe leave out certain questions of ethics and values because, as we talked about, Jason, this, beca this becomes a question of the way different media structure interactions in our modern complex society and so within the current 
framework of the firm and the current legal framework in which we live, um, a firm that acts primarily oriented towards the values of efficiency, uh, maximizing profit, and so forth, has a very limited, uh, at the end of the day, capacity to really integrate, let's say, uh, levels of abstraction that have to do with things like ethics or interest, human interests or values uh, that, are, that go beyond things like um, maximizing profit, being more efficient, and, and things like that. So I think there's a tension as well as a way in which there can be robust um, models through which one can act in reality and, and be rigorous and, in a sense, map that reality in a way that's, that gives you some kind of non no sensical answer as opposed to a nonsensical answer if we go back to Kant and the kind of bad questions that you could ask about reality uh, right to philosophy is can we, if we can if really if we accept this definition which I'm sure many won't a philosophy is something like uh, a method that can translate between different discourses between those of science and those of change management and those of the firm and those of legal then suddenly the philosopher becomes someone who can link these up and find a higher level of abstraction by which to link them. Someone who could create a model that someone very much looking at the world from their very defined perspective of, oh, I'm interested in um, I'm interested in something, a technical question. Oh, I'm interested in a legal question. Oh, I'm interested in just a uh, finance question. They can kind of link these up together and say, well, if we're trying to, uh, if we're trying to do this larger thing of changing a culture we need to consider these things that some someone like you in this specific discourses are not going to be able to look at i mean i'm going to be able to translate how your model links up to this other larger meta level that's the kind of thing i think of uh, someone who's trained like a philosopher can bring to the table and then the, but the problem is the limits of how much someone like that can really let's say change the firm at an ethical or moral level yeah i agree and I think what you're saying is spot on. If we had a way to standardize the way that professionals in this in this field approach how they choose which models to apply, like we need to be self-reflective of the models that we use given identified circumstances and the possible limitations of our decisions. But we also need to tie those models together in a cohesive, philosophically grounded narrative that lays out a roadmap to achieve certain results. Mm -hmm. And yes, maybe the results, maybe we're not going to be able to solve the ethical issues of, of capitalism and, and businesses today, yeah. but we might be able to create better results for our clients and we can cross our fingers that those results also happen to be ethical. <laughs> right. <laughs> right. I think there's, I think you're right. I think you're definitely right that there could be a role for philosophers to at least guide firms and thinking through some of their problems ethically right even if at yeah. the end of the day these these uh these someone who raises these questions for let's say leaders in a firm um uh, might be ignored but you know my my wife who used to be a lawyer tells me that she i think this is interesting it links up to what we're talking about but she talks about how she's talked to lawyers who worked at firms and the good ones understand that they never tell a ceo no the CEO says, why can't we do this? You never say you can't do that. You say, well, you can do that, but this is what's going to happen. You're going right. to get, this is these, this, these are things that are going to happen legally. And are you willing to take that problem? Are you willing to deal with the consequences? Maybe an ethicist in a firm, in a philosophical firm could say, sure, you could write 
you know, you could do that as a firm, the consequences are going to be this in terms of a human cost, an ecological cost, a moral cost, your personal standing as a moral agent. Are you willing to live with that? <laughs> right? Are you willing to be a, a moral monster to make to make this thing happen for your firm? And maybe that's, you know, maybe don't people don't want like that someone like that in the boardroom. But that, a, imagine very, that could change the way. It's a risky yeah. approach, right, uh, if you want to keep your job. What if there's a law that says you have to have someone like that in the boardroom who, before you make any action, tells you, well, this is morally reprehensible or morally, you know, that's, it might, it's a silly, it's a silly sort of thought experiment. But even that, you could imagine how that would change the way a boardroom might vote to do something or not. Maybe not. Maybe it would just be ignored or co-opted somehow, internalized and neutered. Well, there, there's some easy cases, like take Uber that came out. They had a very toxic culture, uh, the, even uh, where sex, sexual harassment was prominent. And as that started to come out and become more public information, it really started to hurt their business as well. So that's one instance where updating the culture, doing a better job, uh, bringing those issues to light, uh, getting rid of some of the top leadership that reinforced that kind of toxic behavior um, that helped the business, seems to be helping the business, uh, and is also, I would think, a pretty clear moral outcome. Right. Yeah, but I, I mean, it's there's a there's a tension then between what firms have to do and they, what they perceive that they need to do to to, to make sure they stay viable. Right. So, but there, but I think that question is interesting as a thought experiment is uh, if there is someone that's able to frame the actions of a firm in moral terms for them, uh, the way sort of a a lawyer would do in legal terms for some, would they be, what would that do to that, to that uh, culture? Right. And it would be positive at the end of the day, perhaps. Okay. So if you manage a firm, should you hire a philosopher? (laughs) <laughs> Do we have an answer to that question, Juan? Uh, I don't know. <laughs> I think you should. Depend. I mean, it goes back to this tension. Uh, I think as a as someone from the humanities, you're trained in, in th- thinking about different levels of abstraction and how their histories of different models and ways of looking at the world, the ideologies behind them, the way that they... Uh, and this can be very beneficial information if you're trying to act strategically. Uh, but having a philosopher in the room at the end of the day for a firm might be more of a nuisance than something that allows them to, uh, depending on what you're trying to do. So, Jason, this goes back to if you're trying to get a robust model for changing something at the level of the way people act as agents and you're trying to think of how you can apply a level of abstraction to change behavior, I think it could be very powerful information to have someone who can map out a model and give you a set of strategies. If you're trying to act, if you're then, if you go to the question of ethics or moral action, then you're in very difficult terrain, I think, uh, as a firm. So this, this goes back to Google, right? Trying to sort of graft on an ethical arm to its operations and how that seems to be always really problematic. It always seems to be second interest to them or like something that's kind of they want to they want to give that image but it's you wonder how how willing they are to take seriously this given their given their uh 
their logic to 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 be accountable to the bottom line. Absolutely. And as kind of a call to my fellow change managers, let's let's dig into kind of the theoretical foundations from which our uh, practices uh, derive, and let's get a better understanding of that so we can speak a more theoretical language and um, back up a lot of the recommendations that we offer to provide a more of a benefit to our clients. That's something I'm always striving to do, and it's yeah. something I hope the rest of the industry would strive to do. Yeah. Um, from a, a standpoint of, of ethics, a uh, more difficult conversation, but I think we uh, touched on a lot of the issues and, and complications with how do we bring ethicist perspectives into the firm setting to to create ethical change that's probably a more complicated issue but from a matter of of designing structures to create results i think there's a there's a strong business case so so start hiring is what i'm saying (laughs) (laughs) sounds good jason awesome all right well that that was a fun conversation yeah and more to discuss a lot more to discuss in future episodes definitely Alrighty. Well, I hope everyone uh, enjoyed the conversation. If you have questions, uh, use the chat box on our website, www.panopticpod.com, or you can tweet at us at panopticpod. And we look forward to receiving your questions. Do you enjoy what you're hearing on Panoptic Pod? Is the application of philosophy, media theory, and communications theory to everyday practical contexts something that you find interesting or useful? If so, please consider supporting our podcast through Patreon at patreon.com slash panopticpod. You can also access our Patreon through our website, panopticpod.com. There you can also drop us a line or a comment Jason and I are always looking for ways to improve this podcast. Your support and comments will help us in that endeavor.